0: Well, good morning, church. My name is Morgan. I'm the student ministries pastor here at FAC, and it's a joy and it's a privilege to be sharing from the word with you this morning. Last week, we launched our summer series, Left on Red, and if you missed it, here's what you need to know. There are 21 letters in the New Testament. 13 of them are written by Paul. Paul. They're profound, they're challenging, they're the inspired word of God. And this summer, our desire as a church family is not just to read them, but to respond to them. We want to lean into what God is saying to us, not just individually, but corporately as an FAC family. Last weekend, Kyle covered the book of Romans, the most influential Christian letter ever written. Romans is 16 chapters. Kyle had half an hour. This weekend, we're covering 1 Corinthians, what I believe might just be the most complex Christian letter ever written. It is also 16 chapters, and I have half an hour. Earlier this week, I was thinking back to my time as a student and my New Testament profs always told us, you have to read a letter in one sitting. That's how they were read in the past. If you don't do it, you'll miss the flow of argument. I'm convinced that they didn't have 1 Corinthians, Romans, maybe even 2 Corinthians in mind. Because as I was preparing for this weekend and tried to sit down and read this letter in one sitting, I realized that in order to do that, you actually have to prep like you're going on a road trip. Because by chapter four, I had to go to the bathroom. And by chapter six, I was hungry. And by chapter nine, I was thirsty. By chapter 11, my back was sore. And by chapter 15, my brain was screaming, Are we there yet? (laughs) All that to say, 1 Corinthians is long, it's challenging. And while we can't cover every detail this weekend, I do hope that you'll go from here feeling encouraged and equipped to read it for yourself because it is a remarkable letter. Last weekend before Kyle introduced Romans, he introduced Paul. And I want to do the same thing, but from a bit of a different vantage point. Recently, I've spent a significant amount of time thinking about the person and the character of Paul. Because I realized that if I don't understand Paul, it's going to be that much more difficult to understand his letters. And so I began to ask, who was this man? Who was Paul? Here's where I landed. Paul was an incredible leader of the early church. He encountered the living Christ on the road to Damascus, and that changed his whole life. He gave up everything to follow Jesus and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He was a missionary and a theologian. He was a pastor. And yet he was also an ordinary man. Yes, he was a man of high regard, but his life was far from perfect. He made mistakes. He fought with his friends. He argued with his co workers. He knew joy and disappointment. He experienced plenty and poverty. Paul was in touch with reality. Every day he navigated the challenges of an increasingly complex world. Sometimes it's easy to think of the apostles as these untouchable figures, religious elite. But Paul's feet were on the ground. He wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. He was aware of the situation in Corinth in all its complexity And he wrote to the Corinthian church as both their pastor and their friend. In the book of Acts, chapter 18, we learn that Paul spent a year and a half with the community in Corinth. He worked with them, worshipped among them, taught them. They did life together. And when you intentionally do life with others, be it your family, friends, roommates, coworkers, students, your heart will bend toward them I've been at FAC for just about nine months. That's half the time that Paul spent in Corinth. And I can say with all my heart that I love my students, I love my youth leaders, I love our staff team, and though I don't know as many of you as I would like to, I love our church family. When we come to First Corinthians, we do so with an understanding that Paul is writing to a beloved community. He calls them brothers and sisters. Together, they're part of God's family. Together, they're growing into the fullness of Christ. He also calls them his children. He's accepted responsibility for them. He's modeled to them the life of Jesus. We can't understand 1 Corinthians if we don't understand Paul's relationship with this church. In this letter, Paul writes on the offense. He calls out the Corinthians' wrong behaviors, challenges their inconsistent worldview, and confronts their poor attitude. Paul has hard things to say to this community, and he doesn't hold back. But everything that Paul says to them is found within the confines of this pre-existing relationship. When Paul left Corinth, his relationship with the church didn't dwindle. It wasn't the last time that they would hear from him, nor was it the last time that he would hear from them. Paul and the church in Corinth talked. They talked a lot. In fact, as far as we know, Paul wrote more to this church than to any other. In 1 Corinthians um, chapter five, Paul says, "I wrote to you in my letter." This is not Paul's first letter to the church. Meaning that 1 Corinthians is not 1 Corinthians. Technically, 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is believed to be 4 Corinthians. But because we only have the two letters, we just call them 1 and 2 Corinthians. Still with me? All that to say, when we read 1 Corinthians, we're jumping midway into a conversation. And that can be Awkward. Humor me. Think of the last time you walked up to a group of people and tried to join in on their conversation. Maybe that happened just earlier in the lobby. How long did how did that go for you? How long did it take you to catch up? Two minutes? Ten minutes? Did you laugh awkwardly when everyone else laughed? Did you nod your head and mm-hmm when you thought it was appropriate? Did you ah when everybody else (laughs) ah Did you ever figure out what they were talking about? Joining a conversation partway is a bit like playing a game of Clue, if you remember that board game. Because you're trying to figure out what happened, where, and who was involved. Was it Mr. Green in the kitchen with the knife, or Miss Scarlet in the dining room with the candlestick? When we read 1 Corinthians, there's an element of catch-up going on. Paul's written to them at least once before, and in between his two letters, they've written to him. In chapter 7, we read, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, Paul wrote to them, they wrote to him, now he's writing back to them. And he's writing to them for two reasons. First, the Corinthians have asked him a number of questions about marriage, singleness, food offered to idols, spiritual gifts, and the collection for the saints. Second, Paul's heard some things through the grapevine that are concerning to him. Word on the street is that within this church there's been fighting, sexual immorality, lawsuits, abuse of the Lord's Supper, disorder in worship, and wrong belief about the resurrection. If, when you're reading 1 Corinthians, you're having a hard time following Paul's train of thought, you are not alone. Woven through the tapestry of 1 Corinthians are threads of unity, wisdom, healthy sexuality, freedom, love, spiritual gifts. If you're looking to pare 1 Corinthians down to one theme, you won't find one because that wasn't Paul's intent. Paul wasn't writing an academic paper providing supporting arguments. He starts with a thesis, restates that thesis in a fresh way. He doesn't use the hamburger model that we learn in grade school, at least the one that I learned in grade school, where you've got the bun, which is like your intro and your conclusion, and in the middle there's like the burger and the cheese and the lettuce as your supporting arguments. Paul was writing a response letter covering a number of topics, most of which are not related And so we come to 1 Corinthians with humble hearts. We don't have all of the answers. There's a lot that we do know, and we can form educated opinions about the things that we're unsure of, but there's a lot that we can't know. Church, can I invite you to come to 1 Corinthians with hands open, knowing that in Scripture, God has given us all we need, but not necessarily all we want? We have two options. We can either allow the complexity of this book to frustrate us or to propel us into the mystery of God. There's always more to learn. And when answers evade us, those are opportunities to trust in the one who delights in revealing himself to his people. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he's writing to an urban church um, at the heart of a major cultural center. With 80,000 people living in the city and 20,000 people living in the GCA, the Greater Corinth area, not to be confused with Glenmore Christian Academy, Corinth was the largest city in the province. And what's unique about Corinth is its geographic location. On the screen is a map of ancient Greece. The yellow lines, if you can see them, are Roman roads. You've probably heard it said that all roads lead to Rome. But have you heard it said that all roads pass through Corinth? If you wanted to travel from mainland Greece up in the north to the Peloponnese down in the south or vice versa, you had to pass through Corinth. And if you wanted to travel by sea from east to west or from west to east, your best option was to disembark and pass through Corinth. All that to say, Corinth was situated at a high traffic intersection. All trade passed through the city, drawing people in from all over the known world. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee compares Corinth to three major U.S. cities New York, Las Vegas, and L.A. Corinth was at once a center of commerce, sexual expression, and entertainment. In one sense, it was the perfect place to establish a church. People from many nations would be given an opportunity to hear the good news of the kingdom of God and then take that good news home with them to their communities. In another sense, it was a particularly difficult place to do church. Not only was the city a major international center, it was a Roman colony. Corinth embodied Roman culture, religion, and values. One commentator going so far as to call Corinth a miniature of Rome. Success, advancement, honor, status, glory were driving forces. Materialism, egocentrism, and individualism were words of the day. Does any of that sound familiar? Perhaps a reflection of our own cultural moment? What Paul makes clear in his letter to the Corinthians is that the values of Corinth are not the values of the gospel. Corinth valued success. The gospel values boasting in the Lord. Corinth valued advancement. The gospel values seeking the advantage of others. Corinth valued honor. The gospel values humility. Corinth valued status. The gospel values servanthood. Corinth valued glory. The gospel values giving up one's rights for another. The creators of the Bible Project, who I just want to say do a really great overview of 1 Corinthians. It's on YouTube. It's about nine minutes long. I'd encourage you to watch it later today. They define the gospel as an announcement about Jesus that ushers in a new reality. Let me say that again. The gospel is an announcement about Jesus that opens up a new reality. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he reminds them of this new reality, and he calls them to live into this new reality. When this letter was written, the Corinthian church was relatively young, maybe five years old at most. And what we need to understand is that when the Corinthians were brought into the family of faith— They brought their values with them. That's normal. (laughs) When people are brought to faith, they bring all of them with them. The Lord doesn't require us to evaluate our values before we come to him. He wants to do that with us. The problem isn't that the Corinthians brought their values with them. The problem is that they never held them up to the light of the gospel. What Paul is pointing out to them in this letter is that their values clash with the gospel. They hinder their effectiveness as witnesses to the gospel. They stand in the way of living in the reality of the gospel. And church, what we see in 1 Corinthians is that to live in the reality of the gospel is to live in the tension of the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. I find it fascinating that 1 Corinthians starts with the cross and ends with the resurrection. I don't know if Paul did that on purpose, but it provides the most beautiful framework for his message to this church. Because every word of encouragement, every admonition, every instruction points to the gospel of Jesus Christ who was crucified and raised to life. And it's from this reality that the Corinthians find their being. Right at the beginning of the letter, Paul identifies the church as those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Before he says anything else to them, he affirms their identity as a people set apart and made holy in Christ Jesus. Before he says anything else, he says to them, this is who you are. And throughout the letter, we hear echoes of that refrain. When Paul encourages and exhorts, we hear the sweet melody, be who you are. And when Paul rebukes and corrects, we hear the thunderous roar, be who you are. In 1 Corinthians, Paul makes several references to the Corinthians' former ways of being. The most plain is in chapter 6. He says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, adulterers, adulterers, male prostitutes, men who engage in illicit sex, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you used to be. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. This is who you were. This is who you are. You are a people washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Live into that reality. Let it shape the way you live, not because you have something to earn or to achieve, but because this is how the Lord Jesus has made you to be. A few verses later, Paul says, "'Shun sexual immorality. "'Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, "'but the sexually immoral person "'sins against the body itself. "'Or do you not know that your body "'is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, "'which you have from God and that you are not your own? "'For you are bought with a price, "'therefore glorify God in your body.'" Notice that Paul doesn't say your body was a temple of the Holy Spirit, but now you've sinned, so it is no longer. No, he says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. You are this way because God himself paid the price for your sin. So be who you are. Glorify God in your body because this is who God is, and this is what he's done. If we're not careful, we can look at a book like 1 Corinthians as one long to-do list. In order to be a Christian, this is what you have to do. But nowhere does Paul say you have to do all these things in order to be a member of the body of Christ. Instead, he says, you are members of the body of Christ. Therefore, do these things. Church, do you know who you are? Do you know that you are washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God? Do you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within you? Do you know that you are members of the body of Christ? Have you responded to this word? Are you living into the new reality of the gospel? The Corinthians weren't. They weren't living into the values of the gospel. They were living into the values of Corinth. They were climbing the ladder of success. They were boasting in their own superior knowledge and wisdom. They believed that they made it. And Paul says to them, no, you've got it all wrong. The gospel isn't dependent on human wisdom. God didn't choose to reveal himself in the wisdom of the world, but in the foolishness of the cross. Paul says to them, "'When I came to you, brothers and sisters, "'I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God to you "'with superior speech or wisdom, "'for I decided to know nothing among you "'except Jesus Christ and him crucified.'" And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not made with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. There is no wisdom in the cross. According to human wisdom, the cross makes no sense. It was an instrument of torture. It was the most humiliating way a person could die. And yet, like everything he touches, Jesus transformed an instrument of torture into the symbol of love. And it's this symbol of love that becomes the pattern for our lives. The cross was more than just an event. The cross informs our very being, who we are and what we do. What Jesus did on that cross changed and continues to change everything. In chapter 11, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He calls the Corinthians to follow his example and adopt the posture of Jesus, whose glory was found not in his power, but in his suffering. I'm jumping ahead a few letters, but here's what Paul says to the Philippian church. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, assuming human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name given to Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." When Paul exhorts the Corinthians to put aside their rights, to seek the advantage of the other, and to love one another, he's pointing them to the cross. The gospel isn't an opportunity for self-advancement. The gospel invites us to step into a new reality, one where we respond to Jesus who says, If any wish to come after me... Let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit them if they gain the whole world, but lose or forfeit themselves? Have you taken up your cross? Are there accomplishments and values that you need to lay at the feet of Jesus? Are there dreams and desires that you need to let go of and offer to him? At the heart of this new gospel reality is the cross. But the gospel doesn't end with the cross. The cross is always held in tension with the resurrection. In Corinth, some were denying the resurrection of the dead. And Paul says to them, Look, if there is no resurrection, the gospel falls apart. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and your faith is in vain. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If our bodies are raised, then what we do with our bodies, it matters. But if our bodies are not raised, then we can join the chorus and say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I've heard people say these words before. Maybe not exactly in these terms, but spin-offs of them. Eat, drink and be merry, you only live once. They're usually said in a happy go lucky joking way. But here's the thing, there's no hope in those words. There's no life in those words, only death. But church, we have good news. In Jesus we have hope. Because just as the cross changes everything, so does the resurrection. This is the mystery of God. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our victory is in Jesus Christ who died and rose again. We live because he lives. But just as we live in the tension of the cross and the resurrection, we also live in the tension of an already but not yet. On Easter, we declare together that Christ is risen, and we live into the reality of his resurrection. But we also know that what Christ started, he has not yet finished. To be clear, he defeated death. It is finished. But in this in-between, we still get sick. We still experience pain. We still die. My family is living with a great awareness of this reality. I asked my dad if I could share a bit of his story. A few months ago, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. For those of you in the room or online who have heard this word said about you or about someone that you love, you know all of the emotions that come with it. It's been a hard few months. My dad is doing well. He's currently a quarter of the way through his treatment plan. Dad, I think you're watching again this morning. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. But it's been intense. The chemo is killing the bad cells, but it's also killing the good ones. I call my dad every day. He gives me updates, tells me how he's feeling, what new symptoms he's experiencing. But he doesn't complain Instead, almost every day, without fail, whenever we talk about his sickness, he points back to Jesus. He points to the hope that we have in him. He hopes in Jesus, our healer. He trusts in Jesus, our Savior. In the midst of his pain, the cross and the resurrection stand ever before him. He is my example of what it looks like to live in the new reality that is opened up by the gospel. When Jesus walked this earth as a man, we got a glimpse of what his kingdom looks like. It's a kingdom where there's no more tears, and there's no more death, and no more mourning, or crying, or pain. It's a kingdom where we get to be with him forever. And so church, we do grieve sickness and pain and loss, but we don't despair because Jesus is coming back to finish what he started. Church, this is the gospel. This is the announcement about Jesus that opens up a new reality. Are you living in it? Are you living in the tension of the cross and the resurrection or are you living according to the values of this world? The Corinthians had a lot of Corinth in them. How much Calgary is in you? Or if you're joining us from another city, how much of your city is in you? 1 Corinthians is a letter that invites us to bring our values and our priorities into the light of the gospel. Not because we're trying to become something we're not, but because we want to be who we are. So, FAC, go. Live into this new reality. Look to Jesus' cross, look to Jesus' resurrection. Be who you are.